taken from Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. These are the words of God. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned that whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our God and Father, we have no one in heaven but you. We come here before you this morning, hungry, thirsty, because we do not live by bread alone. So, Father, pour out your spirit upon us. Feed us by your word. Strengthen us, encourage us, convict us, correct us, and send us from this place under your blessing and equipped. Father, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, it's a great privilege to be with you all this morning. Bring greetings from the saints in Moscow, Idaho. I can speak for all of them. They say hi. <laughs> or I guess it's howdy, y'all, or something like that. Oh, that's what you say. Well, it's a great uh, honor to be with you all, to worship the Lord together with you this morning, and um, uh, particularly thanks to Jeremy and Chris and other elders and deacons that, uh, for the invitation, so it's good to be here. A number of years ago, I was reading um, a wonderful book um, by the name of, uh, the, the book is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, who is a, 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 a faithful Puritan uh, minister uh, who lived uh, during the 1600s, and um, it's a, just a wonderful, as many of those Puritan uh, uh, ministers were, and as many of you you found the Puritan paperbacks, uh, they've, they've been published by Banner of Truth for uh, many years now, uh, a, a tremendous resource just for basic Christian living. Um, uh, the Puritans um, have this way of just dissecting the human heart, and dissecting sin, and dissecting the word, and then just, you know, flaying you. <laughs> and then you know, somehow putting you back together. And it's, so it's just, gen in general, highly commended to you. This book in particular would, would commend it to you. But there's a particular thing in it that I found as I was reading. About three quarters of the way through uh, the book, there was this, this funny uh, thing where he, he said, uh, he made mention of, you know, um, as what happened at our ar with our armies at such and such city. I don't remember the name of the city. That's kind of funny. And there's a little asterisk, and there's a, in the Banner of Truth version, there's a little footnote, and it says um, they won, or uh, they had 
I think they had lost maybe a battle, uh, and then won a battle during the English Civil Wars. And, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, what? So this is a series of nine sermons that he gave, smack dab in the middle of the English Civil War. And, and, the, and the thing that was just startling to me is I'm thinking, hey, if our, if, if our world was at war, if our land went to war, what I think to myself, you know what we need is a sermon series on contentment. <laughs> I, I, and I, I brought it up short. I, I, thought to myself, I don't think that would have been my first instinct. What we need right now, as our world comes apart, as there's chaos and turmoil politically, and of course there's a bunch of religious turmoil bound into that, and you know, families are torn apart, economies in ruins, all kinds of instability. And this wise and godly man said, you know what my people need? They need to be charged with the command from the Lord to be content in all things. This is what they need. And he actually died just a year or so after he gave the sermon series. He died a young man uh, in his 40s. And I think it's a testimony uh, to, to this man's ministry this pastor's ministry, that it was that actually was his, it was his congregation that ensured that that sermon series was published as the book, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, that we now have the opportunity to continue to learn from. I think they were impressed by it. Uh, I think they, they realized, oh yes, this is exactly what we needed, and we want to share that with others. I think it's, it's easy to think of contentment, and, and I, I don't know, maybe just go really, really personal, maybe really, really sort of pietistic, it's something, it's, something, um, it's a good thing. Yeah, contentment is a good thing. Yeah, I think I read about it in the Bible one time. And, and you think, that's yeah, one of those good things, I, I should pick that up one time. You know, I should get that, I know sometimes I've got to be content. But, but I, I think actually, as we, as we meditate on, on this text, it, it actually is, is it's way bigger than that. And it's way more essential than that. It's not one of those things that would be nice to learn as you as you go along. One of those things you know you need to learn as you go along. I know I'm a Christian. I know I need to learn to be content. I've got to you know, practice that and work on it. No, it's it's right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, actually. And and, and the thing that I, I want to impress upon you this morning is it's not it's not just a good thing. It's not just something that is important, but it's actually a central component for joining God's mission. It's a central component of actually establishing his kingdom here in this world and learning to fight like Christians. And that's the, the juxtaposition that might seem odd or strange, learning to fight. How, how would contentment help me learn to fight? Well, that, that's what I want to press upon you. I say, actually, you're no good to the kingdom if your heart's not full of contentment. You're no good to fighting the battles that God has for us to fight unless your heart is full of contentment. So let's walk through this text. If you've got Bibles or your tablet or whatever you're using, uh, Philippians 4. Well, let's just walk through it briefly, verse by verse, just so we have this in our head and then want to unpack a couple pieces of it. So, so Paul is writing uh, in the context of actually a, a fair bit of struggle in Philippi. You might remember that the Philippians are uh, certainly uh, some of the dearest people to Paul. This is one of the more uh, personal letters that Paul writes. Uh, he made some really, really close friends there. Uh, remember um, the, the uh, if you remember Acts, where uh, Paul had been in Philippi. Um, there, the 
uh, the woman who sold purple. I just forgot her name. Lydia. There you go. He had met Lydia and some of the other women down by the by the riverside, and they've been converted. Then, of course, um, they had been uh, thrown into jail. There was they were singing at midnight, and there was the earthquake. And then, of course, they, the Philippian jailer thinks they're they're gone. Paul comes running out and says, "No, no, we're all here." Uh, and um, and, and the jailer falls down on his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? And the gospel is preached. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a middle of the night baptism service. Um, and, and they apparently did some feasting as well. Um, uh, and, and then, of course, the, they, they find out that Paul's a Roman citizen. They haven't treated him rightly. And they say, can you please go away quietly? And Paul says, no, actually, I would like an official escort. <laughs> of course, a whole bunch of our brothers in Christ are saying, well, Paul, that was probably not being very winsome. <laughs> we got to stay a few more days with Lydia before going. So think about all that. That's the background context of Philippi. That's who he's writing to. It's that church. Well, there's, but there's, some, there's some pretty intense struggle that's broken out in Philippi since Paul's there. We know there are enemies outside. We know there are enemies in the world around. Uh, Philippi's a Roman colony. Uh, and, and so there's, there's some pressures there. We also know that there are challenges inside the church. Just before where I began reading, Paul's actually called out two women by name in his letter. I'd like to be those two ladies. <laughs> to, the, to the end of the world, everybody knows the names of Yodius and Syntyche. Right? Even though we can't say them anymore. Right? But those, those two ladies were apparently having, you know, something, they got into an argument about the nursery schedule or something. <laughs> And they weren't getting along, and it got so it was so heated that Paul got word of it, and they get a mention in the letter. <laughs> Don't want to show up in pastor's letters. Uh, he says, they, "You guys need to get along," and he exhorts the whole church. You tell them all, get along, make up, make it right, confess your sin, forgive, get back in fellowship. And it's right after that that he gives this command: "Rejoice in the Lord always." And again, I say. Rejoice. There are enemies outside, there's conflict inside, there's challenges, there's struggles, you know, plus all the other normal, everyday challenges. And Paul says, what you need to do is rejoice in the Lord always. And let me say it again, he says, I'm going to write it down again. Rejoice. A Christian should be known, he says, for being calm and stable because they know the Lord is present and near to them. That's verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto men, all men. Let, may your, your peace be, be obvious to everyone around you because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is at hand. Because the Lord is not far off from you. You're walking with the Lord. People should know that you are calm. You're a calm person. You're not an erratic person. You're not on a constant roller coaster. Because you're walking with the Lord, because the Lord is near to you. And then verse 6, therefore, we must be anxious for nothing. The old King James says, careful for nothing. But you're going to be worried about nothing. In the Greek, it actually says, be worried about nothing. <laughs> Can we do a Greek study on that? Are you sure that's what it says? Yeah, actually, that's exactly what it says. <laughs> be anxious for nothing. Be stressed about nothing. But in everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And notice what Paul's doing there. He's actually, because if you hear the line, be stressed about nothing, be anxious about nothing, be worried about nothing, you're, if you're honest, not, you, you know, you're actually thinking about what that means, you should think, what? How is that possible? What world are you living in, Paul? And Paul, said, it goes on. He's actually showing us how to be anxious for nothing. We fight all anxiety, we fight all stress, all worry, all of that, all of that, by prayer. We fight all anxiety through prayer. That's why he goes right into it. Be anxious for nothing. What's the opposite of being anxious? Pray. The opposite of, uh, the, the opposite of being anxious and stressed and worried is praying. It's, it's right there. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, all those things that tempt you to worry, all those things that come and make a big lump come up in your throat or make you feel a little sick or queasy in the gut, all those things were to do what? Well, pray. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. As fast as the cares come, you must unload them on the one who cares. As fast as they come, you're just a conveyor belt. Lord, you're going to have to help them. That's one too. That one too. That's the only way. And as soon as you hold on to one of them, guess what? You're stressed. You won't, you know, I think, I think I got this one. Yeah, right. Okay. Stop doing that. I, I got this. No, you don't. You're, yeah, you think you do for a second, and then you go wobbly. As soon as it comes, the stress, the worry, the fear, the anxiety, Lord, I need you. I need you. The opposite of anxiety is prayer. Casting our cares on Christ with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. So notice that. You're the conveyor belt. What are you doing? You're saying, thank you, Lord, for this. Help. Thank you, Lord, for this. Help. That's what it should be like. Thank you, Lord. For oh, my gracious. Thank you, Lord, for that. <laughs> right? With thanksgiving. That's verse 6. When we pray like that, God's promise is that his peace, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ. That's verse 7. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep. The word there is guard. It will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. But notice the way to that peace. The way to that peace is being the conveyor belt. It's taking the cares, thanking the Lord for them, and giving to them. Giving, giving them to him. That's the way to the peace. You can't be sitting there taking it all, taking it all, getting piled up with all the anxiety and all the worry and all the stress, and then say, Lord, you said there was going to be peace. No, he said there would be peace when you cast it on him. You have to cast it on him. You have to give it to him with thanksgiving. And that's all, that's all significant. Um, but you, you can't just say, oh, another one. Oh, oh, great. Oh, great. What you're doing there is not giving it to the Lord if you're not thanking him. There you're just tossing it in a pile, and now your your uh, your kitchen's a mess. The promise is that His peace, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's verse seven. Then verse eight. This joyful resting in Christ is marked by a disciplined thought life. This joyful resting in Christ is marked by a disciplined thought life. Keeping a commonplace book of all the good things, all the true things. All the just things, all the lovely things, 
all the virtuous things, all the things that are praiseworthy. That's what is, that, that kind of life, that kind of practice, that kind of discipline uh, is marked by people who, who are keeping track of, diligently, all the good things. All the good things. That's verse 8. This attentiveness should include imitating mature Christians, like Paul. So he says this in verse 9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. There's another promise of peace. Imitate those who are ahead of you. Mark those people you say, I want a marriage like their marriage. I want children like their children. I, I want grandchildren like their grandchildren. I, I want a business that runs like that. Mark them, see the way they live, follow them. In Hebrews 13, it says particularly that elders are to be that way. Those who minister the word of God, you're to look to them and look to the outcome of their lives and imitate them. And if they're not imitatable, they ought not to be leaders. But that's, but that's what he's doing here. Paul says another way to have peace is to look to those that God's put in front of you who are ahead of you in the faith in maturity and discipline and imitate them. Follow them. That's verse 9. Finally, Paul models this joyful contentment by expressing his delight in the gift he recently received from the Philippians. That's verse 10. He's just modeling joy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, we don't know exactly where um, uh, Paul was when he wrote this letter, but uh, some people believe that he was likely in Rome uh, under house arrest. Um, and so, you know, I mean, he was preaching and he was doing his Paul thing, you know, never slowed down by anything. And at the same time, if he was under house arrest, he wasn't exactly as free to move about the country as he would have liked to or, you know, make it to Spain or whatever. And, um, and there he is, just, you know, Paul could have a bad attitude. Paul, Paul could have, you know, been kind of bummed. I was hoping to make it around a little bit more. I'm stuck here in Rome under house arrest. But what's Paul doing? He's delighting in the good thing. And the, and the good thing you just got was a gift from the Philippians. Thank you so much. That was just wonderful. Made my day. He's modeling that joy and that peace for them. He was truly thankful, but certainly not desperate for the gift, because he had learned to be content in every situation, because Christ strengthens him. That's verses 12 and 13. 11, 12, and 13. Now, just... One last comment on this text, the, the particular uh, verses, and then I want to um, pull apart a couple of themes here. Um, notice that verse 13, that's one of those you know, Christian calendar verses, the you know, Christian refrigerator verses, I can do all things through Christ who strengthening me. I don't know, usually there's like a kitten with a ball of yarn or something. <laughs> and you're like, what's that got to do with it? kitten is trying to bat the ball of yarn, and I, I can do all things. Um, no, notice what Paul's talking about in that verse. What can he do? What are the, all the things that he can do? He can be content in all things. The application of this is not about you building your business. The application of this is not, um, I can really work through a, a hard stretch of marriage. Uh, there may be a, a collateral benefit, but that's not what it's talking about. In context, what Paul is talking about is, I can be content in all things. That's the strength of Christ that he's talking about. That he, even if he has little, he's rejoicing. If he has much, he's rejoicing. That's what he's talking about. 
I can be content in all things because Christ strengthens me. So contentment in God, contentment in God requires that you actually know the God you're content in. Okay? Contentment in God means that you must actually know the God you're content in. Christian contentment is not contentment in whatever you imagine God to be like. It's, it's easy to, to say, you know, be content in God, you know, God bless you, see you later. And then people just start doing what they think is, that is. But if you're not content in the true God, if you're not content in the living God, it's not going to work. You can say the word contentment a whole bunch, but if you're not resting in who God actually is, you're not actually learning Christian contentment. So who is this God that we are to be content in? Who is this God? He is the God who is set on taking this world from glory to glory. Okay? This is the God you serve. This is the God you are to be content in. He is the God who is intent on taking this world from glory to glory. We see this in the beginning, in the very first chapter of the Bible, in the creation there. God creates something good, and then he comes back the next day, and he restructures it and improves upon it. We see this every day in Genesis 1. Just, again, before there's any sin in the world, before there's any death in the world, before there's any darkness in the world, what you see is, this is what God is like. Who is this God that we serve? Well, he's a creator God, but not only is he a creator God, he's an ambitious creator God. He makes light, separates it from the darkness. That's pretty good. Comes back the next day. What can I do now? I'm going to separate the waters above and the waters beneath. I'm going to create heaven. I'm going to create this expanse. I'm going to create the firmament. He comes back another day and says, I'm going to divide the waters below and I'm going to make dry land. Let's have some, something grow on that dry land. Not, and he comes back and he fills the expanse with stars and planets and galaxies. Comes back again and says, you know, it's a little empty in here. How about some fish and birds? Think, you know, just think like, the sky was just so empty and clean. And then God just let them all loose. You know, birds everywhere. God, wasn't it a little better without the birds? A little cleaner. Birds are messy. And fish, you know, like little fish tanks, that's nice and all. But really, all that, that's a mess. Oh. And then he comes back again, another day. Let's do, let's just fill the earth with stuff. Creeping things, crawling things, spiders, ants, elephants, lions, tigers. I mean, just, I mean, it's, it's really over the top. Right? And this is God. This is the God you serve who comes, makes something good, and then comes back the next day and says, I can do it even better. And every time it is better, and you think, oh, maybe just stop right there, Lord. No, no, no. You got another idea. You got another idea. This is the God you serve. He creates something good and comes back the next day and restructures and improves upon it. If you'd been there watching, you might have been tempted to urge God to stop at some point along the way. That's good enough. No. If the light was good, why make the firmament for the, for the sun, the moon, and stars? If the dry ground and the seas were good, why add animals and fish? What we see in the creation week is the beginning of God's pattern of taking good things and making them better. God takes good things and makes them better. 
This is the God we rejoice in. This is the God we remain calm in. This is the God whom, in whom we refuse to be anxious about anything. This God is not far off. This is the God who is near to us. But notice what that means. He's not going to leave you alone. He's not going to leave your world alone. This God, if he draws near to you, he starts messing with things. He changes things. He is intent on taking you from glory to glory. The same pattern follows through the rest of Scripture. And just in case you were tempted to think, well, that was just sort of a one-off thing when he was creating the world. He was a little excited and rambunctious. No, no. No, that's, that's, that's how he is all the way through. Particularly, we see this in God's covenantal dealings with his people. The covenant with Noah grows into the glory of the covenant with Abraham. And that glory grows into the covenant with Moses. Notice this. God comes and begins right in the garden right after Adam sins. That covenant of grace that begins there where God covers Adam and Eve with the skins of the animals, promises that the seed of a woman will one day crush the seed of the serpent. Anything else? That's very nice. That's great. Wonderful. God's not done. Then, then he's got Noah, got the ark, got the flood, got the destruction, and God comes back and says, Noah, on top of what I told Adam, I'm giving you a rainbow. Uh, you can eat meat. And now I want you to exercise the death penalty. All right, okay, that's, that sounds reasonable. Good. He's like, just hold it right there. That's not the God we serve. A few generations later, God's going to call Abram. Say, I want, I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. I'm going to add to what I've already given Adam, what I've already given Noah. On top of all of those promises, on top of all those instructions, now I'm, I'm, I'm promising you a land. I'm promising you actually that's just going to be a sign of, of the ends of the earth. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the heavens. I'm giving you the sign of circumcision. Then you got that all the way to Moses. That's, oh, well, that's pretty amazing. But then God says, no, more. More. I'm going, to, I'm going to write down the ten words on a tablet. I'm going to give it to you. I want you to build this glorious tent. I'm going to come live with you. My presence is going to be there in the center of your war camp. And I want, you to, I want you to make distinctions between things like you haven't before so that you would be a light to the nations. And they're going to look at you and say, what, what amazing God do they serve? Who's so good and so just. And here's how I want you to apply these Ten Commandments in your life. Here's the law. Here's the covenant. Again, glory to glory to glory. He's building on it. It's, it's, it's growing. And then, of course, that also grows into the covenant with David. The glory of the covenant of David. You have God saying, I'm going to make your, your descendant is going to rule on my throne forever. Of course, that's the seed of the woman. That's Jesus. But the glory of David and Solomon, again, is adding to all the glory. Glory, glory, glory. And, and even that. Glory grows under Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple in the city. And Christ is the culmination of all the covenants in the new covenant. And Paul says that when we see the gospel unfolding and culminating in Christ like that, we are being changed into the same image from glory to glory. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. I just asserted that's what God's doing. 
But there is a proof text, 2 Corinthians 3.18. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that as the Old Covenant scriptures are being read, what I just traced for you, Adam through the end of the Old Covenant, Paul says when those Old Testament scriptures are read in the synagogues, most of the Jews are blinded. There's a veil over their hearts. There's a veil over their eyes, kind of like when Moses came down from the mountain and they don't want to see the glory. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. Cover it up, Moses. Too bright. But Paul says when we see the Old Covenant ark as growing from glory to glory to glory to Jesus, he says the veil is removed. The veil is taken away. And now, that same glory, that transitioning glory, 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 that transformative glory is now at work in you. Listen to it again. We are being changed into the same image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. As you read those scriptures in your private reading, as you hear that word proclaimed in the assembly, of saints, as you look to Christ and you see him as the fulfillment, he is the seed of the woman. He is the greater Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He is the greater Abraham who believed. He is the seed of Abraham come from the barren womb of a virgin. He is the greater Moses, the lawgiver. He is the one who tabernacled in our presence, in our midst, John says. He is the greater David. He is David's son. And he is the builder of the temple and the city, like Nehemiah and Ezra. And he says, when you hear that, it's glorious. The veil comes off. The light shines on you. To do what? To change you from glory to glory. You get it? There's no spectators for it here. That's wonderful, right? Very, very, very nice. Very nice. No, it's shining on you. Do you see it? It's that narrative, it's that story that God is using to change you from glory to glory. He's taking you from good to better, to best. The whole Bible is the story of Christ. Remember that, that the walk on that Easter Sunday when the two disciples were leaving Jerusalem? They were walking away from Jerusalem brokenhearted, and Jesus comes up alongside them and begins walking with them. And they don't recognize him. Like, okay, what are you guys talking about? He's sneaky. Uh, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what went down this weekend? There was an execution. And the one we thought was the Messiah. He got killed. Where's Jesus? Isn't that what was supposed to happen? And then it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, training the you know, best Bible study ever, right? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets and the Psalms traced how Christ, the Christ had to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, all the scriptures concerning Himself. It's all about Jesus. From Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Jesus, Jesus. The center of Christian contentment 
is Jesus. Why, why is it absolutely essential for Christians to be content in God? Because Jesus is their contentment. Jesus, what? He is our peace. He is our peace. How is it that we are not we are to be anxious for nothing? Because Christ is in us. And he's in us because we've met him, we've seen him in the word. And then, of course, in that story, it's the word. And then what, what happens? Right to a table. And then, what is it? And it's in the breaking of the bread. What happens? They recognize him. They see him. They see him. It's in the word and in the sacrament. It's in the word and in the breaking of bread. It's in, it's in the word and the water. You see. Paul says, if you're reading it right, if you're looking right, if you're seeing it right, you see Jesus. And you see the light of Christ, and it's changing you from glory to glory. The center of Christian contentment is Jesus, and the very center of that is the cross of Jesus. In which God broke the very best man in order to remake the whole world of him. This is God's way. He takes the good things and he breaks them in order to make them better. He takes his favorite things and he breaks them in order to make them better. Paul says that Christian contentment is also learned through prayer. It's learned through prayer. The pattern for Christian prayer is laid out in the Lord's Prayer. What, what should Christians pray? At the very least, you should regularly pray the Lord's Prayer. Jesus told us to. I know this is radical. It's a crazy item. Do you pray the Lord's Prayer regularly? What? Christians should pray the Lord's Prayer. Well, that sounds kind of Catholic. Well, sorry. Jesus actually said to pray the Lord's Prayer. I'm not saying pray the Rosary. Pray the Lord's Prayer. He told us to. There's a lot of Protestants that don't pray the Lord's Prayer. Well, it's, you know, it's a rote form. Well, take it up with Jesus. Let me just say the same thing over. Oh, well, he, he said, pray like this. Argue with him. He's the Lord. He knew what he was doing. Well, what does he say to pray? He says, pray our Father. means that we cry out to God as the one who made us and cares for us as his father. He is not detached. He is not distant. He is near. He is your father. You pray to God as your father. You see him as your father. You see him as better than the best dad in the world. And if you didn't have a father and didn't know your father, you see him as your father. The one who cares for you. The one who is never far off one who sent his only son for you, that he might be adopted as his own son, daughter. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that we entrust our stories to his story. It's not about our kingdom, it's not about our will. It's about his kingdom and his will. We entrust our stories to his story. We entrust our families to his plan. We entrust our world to his will. He has a plan that he is carrying out in this world that is wonderful, glorious, and altogether lovely. And his kingdom and his will 
are taking this world and us from glory to glory. It's in that context that we know that we need, we know what we need. It's in that context that we're invited to tell God what we need. Ask for our daily bread. It's actually pretty audacious for us to think that we know what we need. Really? Sometimes we're very, very sure. I need to get married now. I need children now. I need a job now. We need the church now. Now, God says ask. Ask. But I mean, how often do children ask their parents for things? And, you're, and you know, I mean, what's, what's the ratio really? You know, four-year-olds asking, Dad, what I really need is, what's the, you know, what's the percentage you think it's going to be a good one? 401k. Save it for retirement. Good idea. Good idea. Good idea. Do we run the universe? Now, God invites us. Ask for your daily bread. Ask for the things. But notice how simple it is. What was your daily bread? It's the things you need each day. We ask, and he says, pray for big things. Have, have faith in must receive and ask for mountains to move. He says, do it. So we ought to do it. We ought to do it boldly. We ought to do it audaciously. But we ought to also, in the back of our minds, think, all right, this is pretty crazy to me, God. And this is what I think. We ought to know that. We ought to have that kind of humility. But in particular, he says, ask for your daily bread. Ask for those things you know you need each day. We're also to do so with thanksgiving. Remember that from Philippians 4. With thanksgiving. This recognizes that what we have today is already from God's hand, and whatever God gives us for our daily bread is good. So thank Him. Learn to thank Him for everything. Before you ask, you know, the thing that weighs on you, again, the thing that weighs on you, what is it? Think to yourself for a moment. What's the thing that weighs on you? What's the thing you ask the Lord for maybe most often? Family member, health concern, whatever it is, think about it for a moment, you know it. Make a habit, make a practice of thanking God for it first. Thank Him for it first. Father, thank you for my unbelieving friend. Thank you. Thank you for putting him in my life. Now, Lord, would you please save him? Thank you, Lord, for this health challenge. Now, would you please take it away and heal me? As far as we can, we want to pray in the will of God. As far as we can, we want to pray for those things that we see that would work toward the coming of Christ's kingdom. And that's why it's important that all our requests include a spirit of surrender. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Trusting your Father. Christian contentment, in this sense then, is not at all apathetic. Christian contentment is not at all stoic. Christian contentment, grounded in the mission of God, is actually militant. Because what, what's the center of your contentment? It's Jesus. And what's the center of God's mission? Jesus. Who's the one leading the conquest? Jesus. Right? If, if Jesus is, if it's not you, and your plan, it's Jesus and his plan, God and his plan, then to be fully content in Jesus is to be right where you need to be in order to join the fight. Because he's the one leading it. 
If you're off on, on, on the sidelines, running around, screaming, freaking out, anxious, stressed, worried, all those things, you're no good to the kingdom. And it doesn't matter if you point out a, a few random good, you know, things that are truly bad in the world. You know, the United Nations and whatever, you know, COVID-19 and, you know, lockdowns, Trump, whatever, I don't know, Biden. If you're freaking out, you're not helpful to anybody. You're making it worse. Get in line. Get, you want to fight? Join the army. You want to fight? Don't draw near to Jesus. Trust your captain. Trust your king. Romans 16 says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Notice that? The God of peace is going to crush Satan's head. The God of peace is going to crush Satan's head. You have that peace. Do you want to crush Satan's head? Then you must have the peace of God in your heart. It's the God of peace that's actually going to do the crushing. It's not merely that it's a nice thing to have God's peace. It is the peace of God that crushes Satan under your feet. When we pray with contentment, the promise is that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is our armor. You, you notice that? It says the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. It, it doesn't say, try to get as much, you know, try to grab on the peace. Frequently we think, I need to try to keep my peace. We think we're guarding God's peace. I'm just going to guard it right here. Don't touch my peace. Don't touch my peace. I don't know how you're trying to get at my peace. That's not how it works. It actually says it's the other way around. It's the God of peace. It's the peace that passes all understanding that guards you. You stand behind the peace of God. You don't try to stand in front of the peace of God. You're no good at that. That's where all the anxiety comes from. That's where all the stress comes from. i got to keep my peace. i got to keep my peace. No, you've got it all wrong. It's the peace of God that keeps you. And it's the peace of God that keeps you, and it keeps you because you've been giving your cares to the Lord. You thank him for it, and you give him to it. You give it to him. You thank him for it, you give it to him. And the peace of God guards you. You don't guard it. The peace of God is our armor. The peace of God is our fortress. Paul says, says elsewhere we need to wear the gospel of peace on our feet. You're shod with the gospel of peace. You're wondering, like, why on my feet? Well, that's what you crush Satan's head with. Right? That's what you march into battle with. Right? Soldiers need good shoes. And what are you walking in? The peace of God. My king has this. My father has this. My lord has this. He's dealt with a decisive blow. Satan's wounded, deadly wounded. The capital city is fallen. And now we get to take the world. Peace is our armor. The peace of Christ is what takes us into battle. So, you cannot fully participate in the mission of God without the peace of God. This is because the conquest of the gospel is a mission of healing and restoration. It is not a mission of destruction. The gospel is very disruptive to the old world, the old man, the old systems of sin, death, and the devil, and that's why they hate us. But it actually destroys that slavery, those strongholds, in order to establish freedom and joy and peace. And therefore, you cannot be that peacemaker if you are not already a fortress of peace and contentment. The charge is look to Christ. Look to him, which is death and resurrection. Look to him. 
Do not look around. Do not look side to side. Do not look at the world. Do not, do not fear. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. He came for you. He was crucified for all your sins so that none of them would cling to you. They were all nailed to the cross so that none of them are on you. And then when he was buried, your sin was buried, and your sin went down to the grave, down into the darkness, and when he, he rose from the dead, it didn't come back with him. And he rose so that you might rise. He rose so that you might rise to newness of life, so that you can stand here today, this morning, and come to this table, and you can walk out of here under his full blessing. So that whatever you're facing, whatever the challenge, whatever the battle, you have peace in your heart because you have Christ in your heart. And you are a peacemaker because you have peace to give. You have peace to make because you have been made at peace with your Father. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us in Jesus. We thank you that it's far more than we understand. I pray, Father, that everyone in this room would have your peace. I pray that they would have it first of all because they're at complete peace with you. Because they've been reconciled to you through the death of your Son. And then, Father... Having that peace, I pray, Father, that you would give us, your people, far greater discipline in walking in that peace. That your peace would guard us day by day and guard our hearts and our minds. Father, give us that peace so that we might be your peacemakers, so that we might be part of your great work in bringing your peace to this world. Father, we ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. amen.